Hi, this is Etta Dale Hornsteiner. Welcome to Live Living, Transformational Living Magazine. And today on the show, I have with me Dr. Kurt Thompson. Dr. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist in a private practice in Falls Church, Virginia, and founder of Being Noon, which develops teaching programs, seminars, and resource materials to help people explore the connection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spirituality, which lead to genuine change and transformation. Dr. Thompson is also the author of Anatomy of the Soul. This is a book about change, transformation, connection, the importance of establishing meaningful relationship with God and humankind. It is about the importance of understanding ourselves. It's the celebration of God's best work, masterpiece, the human being. This book resonates with the voice of the psalmist David. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Dr. Thompson combines insights from neurobiology and biblical truths and shows us how we can attain a healthy and spiritually enriched life in body and mind. Welcome, Dr. Thompson. Anna, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Can we really achieve a spiritually enriched life in body and mind? Does that make sense? Well, I, I, I believe it does make sense. Your question is uh, very clear, and I think it's a question that is increasingly being asked by people both within and outside of the church. Um, I think that one of the... Um, one of the questions that has personally been uh, one that I've wrestled with in my own life is around this question of if, if my life is actually, uh, if, I'm, if I'm growing in Christ, as St. Paul would write, or if I'm becoming spiritually more mature, uh, what does that actually mean? Uh, what, how do I measure that? And not because I'm a scientist, am I interested in measuring it, but is it really? Do, is there evidence for this that can show me that yes, there really is change that's taking place? And I think one of the things that uh, the emergence of the research in this field of interpersonal neurobiology has demonstrated for us is that there are real changes, real embodied changes that take place when people are living lives that are flourishing in line with those elements of the biblical narrative that we usually look toward uh, as measuring sticks for what it means for us to have uh, enriched lives. So those elements of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, for which we read about in Galatians 5, those things are all uh, elements of life that have now we would see high correlation with changes that we can actually measure that are taking place in the brain and in the body uh, that we, you know, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, we did not have the uh, way of, of measuring those things. And so one of the things that we've seen is that as we've talked about neuroscience with patients and as, we've, as I've talked about this across the country and even outside of this country, 
uh, in churches and pastoral retreats and even in academic settings. Uh, there is, uh, God, we, we really believe that God is using the evidence of his good creation, the evidence that we find in neuroscience, to help energize and inform this faith, this story that we have held so dearly for now well over, well over 2,000 years, including the story of the Jews. And so it's been refreshing to see how God does not leave himself without a witness. And even in modern day, the things that we're learning about in science, especially science of the brain, uh, God is using to help refresh and restore and give new life and new language even uh, for people to help learn not just about what is changing in their life, but give them tools by which um, becoming more like Jesus is actually something they can realize. Define for our listeners what interpersonal neurobiology is. Over the course of many years, there have been a number of different research uh, elements that have looked at what the mind is all about. And so different fields of study uh, look at the mind from different perspectives. So you have people who look at the anatomy of the brain, for instance. But you also have psychologists that might look at child development or family therapists that try to understand the way the family system works. Or you have folks that are looking at the way neurons work, and so they're studying rats in a lab. Many, many different fields of study that have an interest in the mind and what it means and what it means for it to flourish, but many of which have not really ever uh, taken the time to interact with and talk with the other surrounding fields that are also studying it, albeit coming from different directions. Interpersonal neurobiology, first coined by my friend and colleague Dan Siegel, uh, who's in Los Angeles, is a way of thinking about uh, how we describe the mind, a way of describing the mind, the way the mind works, and what a flourishing mind looks like when understood uh, as uh, being a system. The mind is a system that is both relational and it is embodied, and it is deeply, uh, in order for it to flourish, is deeply dependent upon those relationships in order for the very neurons in the brain to grow and connect together. So this phrase, interpersonal neurobiology, seems to uh, collectively uh, symbolize this new research that is emerging in which we're finding common language to help connect a lot of the best work that comes from different fields of study, all of which are interested in talking about the mind. Most importantly, though, I think, has been the question, at least for me, of how do we then integrate, how do we then incorporate this new neuroscience from the field of interpersonal neurobiology uh, with our story of what it means to follow Jesus. And that's largely been what the work of the book Anatomy of the Soul has been all about. Right. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I know one of the scriptures that's, you know, that stand out in my mind when you mention um, about the mind, the study of the mind, is, is the one about renewing your mind, where we are instructed to renew our minds. And right. so um, what implication then does this field of study would have for us as believers um, when it comes to renewing the mind? Because we seldomly have this discussion. I mean, we seldomly do not talk about the mind um, 
we're hearing it more and more, but our discussions have always been more focused on the spiritual, so to speak, things. Right. So now we have the study in neurobiology um, is making all these fascinating discoveries about the mind. So how does that relate to us and that information, that instruction that's in the Bible? Well, one of the, uh, one of the texts that has been really helpful for me and, and, and writers who have done work around these texts uh, that have helped shape my own thinking on this um, begins actually in some of the earliest parts of the Bible that we have. In the second chapter of Genesis, the seventh verse, we read, and God formed man from the dust of the earth, and God breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and man became a living being. This idea, right from the first pages of the Bible, that the essence of who we are, for us to be a living being, requires that we have the breath of God in our embodied selves. If we take our bodies out of the equation, we stop being human beings as we were intended to be. If we take the breath, if we take our spirit out of ourselves, we stop being the full human beings that we were intended to be. And so in order for us to think from the very beginning, from an anthropological standpoint, about what it means to be human, let alone what it means to follow Jesus, we need to look at those texts that tell us for us to be human means that we are both dirt and we are breath. There's no two ways about that. That comes right out of the scriptures. That's important and instructive for us as we learn about the mind because we learn that the mind is not just some abstract thing that's floating out there in the ether. Nor is it, so it's not just a set of abstract feelings or thoughts. It includes my body in order for it to be active. One of the questions I frequently ask people is, if you're ever anxious, how do you know that? And they will report that they feel it in their stomach. They feel it in the palms of their hands as they sweat. They feel it in their chest as their heart rate increases. How do we know that we feel joy when we feel it? So much of our emotional state, so much of our awareness of ourselves, even our awareness of our mind, requires that we are aware of our body because our body is part of how our mind is working. And it's not just our brain. Our mind is embodied, not just in brain. St. Paul reports in 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say, for instance, don't you know that your brain is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say, don't you know that your soul is the temple of the Holy Spirit or that your heart is the temple? Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? I hear in that text an invitation to pay attention to the Holy Spirit by paying attention to my body. My body is going to tell me what I sense, what I image, what I feel, what I think. And so the mind is embodied, and in addition, the mind is more than just what I think. Therefore, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, although he's also primarily talking about the way we think, he speaks other, in other places about the mind such that if that mind is going to be renewed, it includes those things that I feel, that I sense, that I image, my behaviors included. Whoa, so, whoa, 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 hold on. Before you go any further, all right. right. 
this may go against the grain of, for a lot of people, what they've been taught, um, such as, you know, what you feel, you ignore your feelings, um, you're supposed to be concerned about spiritual matters, feelings and senses, you know, they may even be connected to the devil and we're not to, you know, it's all fleshly stuff and this is your nature. Mm, right. Well, let me, let me just, let me just, I, 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 I you know, having, having grown up uh, in the 19, you know, 60s, 70s, uh, I, I completely um, understand what it means to grow into a world that uh, distrusts what we feel. And of course, this is, uh, unfortunately, this is, this is something that we can sometimes easily think uh, is something we've been taught just in the church, but it's important to know that that position in which we learn not to trust feelings, that we only trust what we think, for instance, we don't trust our bodies, we only trust what we think, is not simply a product of the church, nor is it in the biblical narrative. That's actually something that began to emerge even in the time of Jesus. It began to emerge um, with the Gnostics. It, it reemerged very, very powerfully in the late uh, 16th century, uh, 15th and 16th century, um, and with, with the Enlightenment. And so uh, our friend Descartes, who comes along and says, I think, therefore I am, we have four to five hundred years of history that have taught humankind that what we think logically and linearly is ultimately the most important thing that it means to be human. But that, I would suggest, is not what the biblical narrative tells us. We have an entire set of 150 psalms that occupy the center of the Christian Bible that exist primarily as a way to give us a way to talk to God and to each other about what we feel. But what about the scripture that says, um, you know, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That is so often quoted. It is true that that's quoted. I, I, would, I would invite those who are reading that text to understand that that was a comment that Jesus makes to a Samaritan woman in a particular time and place where the issue of the conversation was about who gets to be in charge of God. Is God worshipped on your mountain or is God worshipped on my mountain? Who gets to own God? And I think that if you look at the larger context of that story, his comment to the woman is to enlarge her awareness that God is not just to be understood in terms of something that is merely occupied, that merely occupies a temple or merely occupies a particular place on the earth, that God is far bigger than that. But that does not tell us that God's mode of operating within us excludes other elements of how we are created. One would think that if God was only spirit and it only matters to him about our spirits, that he could have done well enough without making us into embodied people. But it's very clear from the founding anthropological texts of our Bible that in order for us to be living, fully living beings, we need our bodies. And God communicates to us through our bodies. If we take our brains out of the picture, we can't think. And our brain is no more a part of our body 
than our stomachs or our lungs are. And as such, just as the psalmist asks of God in, in the 86th Psalm, verse 11, create in me, O God, an undivided heart, meaning not just that I'm not in conflict, but that I bring together, I live in an integrated way, bringing what I sense, what I image, what I feel, what I think, and my behaviors, that I act out in my body. All of these things come together into an integrated whole, and as such, create the opportunity for human flourishing. Okay, so what I'm hearing here is um, that though, you know, I'm... I'm thinking of this, of another scripture it says walk in the spirit, you know, and and I think sometimes what hap- what has happened is that once we hear something, we think that it's going to exclude the other, um, that is just going to be about spiritual. Um, but if we are embodied, as you're saying, then it's going to be impossible to disconnect. Right, and I think that um, I have found the work of uh, N.T. Wright, uh, a well-known Anglican um, uh, theologian and pastor and scholar, uh, to be helpful here, um, because his work in the New Testament would suggest that when we see language in the New Testament, language of things like spiritual versus fleshly, anything that, that Paul is referring to, for instance, He's not referring to, when he uses the word spiritual, he's not referring to the unseen world, just what I think and what I sense, over and against my physical or my embodied self. The word spiritual in Paul's language refers to all of those things that are godly. So godly actions when I play the piano. Godly actions when I sculpt. Godly actions when I'm creating new, helpful software. When I'm... I'm, I'm, digging a well in Africa to bring fresh water to a community. That is spiritual activity. Oh, so that's what Paul meant in Philippians, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are right, think on these things. Of course. And those things include, like right or not, these are not just abstract things that I think about. So if I'm thinking about drilling for fresh water, that is a thing that I have to do with my body, And that is what Paul means when he talks about that which is spiritual, as opposed to those things of the flesh, to which he's not referring those to to just those things that have to do with my body. Of the flesh refers to those things that are ungodly in their motivation, direction, and activity. Mm, Okay. That brings a lot of um, light. Clarity. Well, I hope, that, I hope that's helpful. That's been very helpful for me because it, it, one of the things that, it, it, that, again, that it reinforces is that as we pay attention, for instance, uh, to, to what our bodies are telling us, I, uh, this, one of the stories I tell is of one evening we were in our kitchen many years ago when, our, when my daughter was about 15, and uh, we were having to, the next day, we were as a family going to join our church in an early morning uh, work detail. It was on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, and being a 15-year-old, that wasn't something that she wanted to really get up and do, but we had primed our kids earlier in the week and said that we were going to be doing this. Well, when it came time to asking her when she wanted me to get her up the next morning, uh, she was really fit to be tied about all that and began to have a reaction that was not very pleasant to me. I just wanted to go to bed. I didn't want to have a 20-minute conversation with my daughter about why we got to get up and go to do this work detail. But the thing that, I, that got my attention was I began to notice, literally in my own body, 
a certain level of tension, like my heart rate going up, I noticed my jaw getting tight. And it was in my paying attention to my body that I was able to recognize that something was going on with me, that it wasn't just about my problem in that moment was not just about my daughter's reaction. My problem was my reaction to my daughter's reaction. But the only way I was really able to pay attention to that was if I was paying attention to the signals that my own body was telling me. It was only in that moment that I was able to say, one of those rare moments perhaps when I was able to you know, parent in, in a way that would be good to parent, I was able to ask her if we could move out of the kitchen go someplace and sit down and have a conversation. And as we know, when we are tense, one of the things that can be helpful is if we actually sit down. It lowers our blood pressure. It lowers our heart rate. We can take a couple of deep breaths. All of that tends to reduce the activity of our sympathetic drive system that's starting to ramp things up. And in so doing, taking a couple of deep breaths, which of course is me working with my body, or in the language of interpersonal neurobiology, also working with my mind, we were then able to have a really helpful, productive conversation in which we found out that her reaction to my question had nothing to do with the next day. It had to do with a couple of really bad days that she'd had at school. Now, it would easily be the case for me to kind of like lose my mind, be upset with her for not being compliant, go upstairs, everybody's angry, only to find out that I wasn't paying attention to what my body was trying to tell me. In so doing, we don't just avoid having a blow-up, but we also create space for my daughter and I to have a conversation that created an option for her to have some healing about the things that had happened to her in the, next, in, in, in the days that had been preceding that conversation. This is what I think is true about a lot of us, that there are these moments, these small moments that take place day to day in our families, in our churches, in our places of work, where if we are paying attention to our embodied mind and to what the Holy Spirit is trying to uh, say to us by getting our attention through our embodied mind, there are so many different ways that we can have different kinds of interactions with people that otherwise would be the kinds of interactions that later we'll be sorry about. Wow. That's great. That is, that, you just summed it up so well um, about the the embodiment, you know, being embodied, knowing that we're, we cannot be disconnected from our body, mind, and spirit. Right. Um, according to your book, we, uh, you've placed great emphasis on knowing rather than being known. Explain what it is to be known and why it is so important. Well, I think that uh, it it's, it's comes as uh, no surprise to all of your listeners that uh, in our culture, actually in anybody's culture, uh, knowing things is important uh, because we equate knowing things with power. Uh, but I also equate knowing something uh, not just with power, but particularly uh, power that enables me to do things in life without having to depend on anyone else. And so uh, it struck me when I read Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where in the second and third verses he writes that there are those who 
think they know as they really don't. But the person who loves God is known by God. It really struck me that he said the person who loves God is known by God. He did not say the person who loves God knows God. That's not to say that we who love God don't know God. But it struck me as a phrase that was unique. And it began to, uh, it, 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 it was unique because it so resonated with work that we were doing in the field of neuroscience, in which we were learning, especially in the research on attachment, that it is significant for the development of a child's mind and brain and capacity to be emotionally uh, resilient, for that child to be known and understood by their primary caregivers. Rearing children is not just a matter of babies being born and then we give them a set of instructions about what they're supposed to do in order for them to behave rightly in the world. They themselves are growing, changing beings who hunger and thirst to be connected to their primary caregivers. One of the things I, uh, we, that we talk about in our, uh, my speaking engagements is that you know, we know that every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her. And that never stops. Each one of us is constantly hungering and thirsting to be known by others. Okay. Um, does it mean like being a celebrity, you want people to know you? Do you mean like that? Well, you know, it's one thing. Uh, people can know things about people. Uh, but it's very different when I'm, for instance, I, I have... You know, I have a handful of people in my life who I meet with regularly in order to make sure that I'm revealing to them everything that I can tell them that I know about my life. You know, it's, it, it makes a huge difference in one's life when you feel like there's nothing about your life, especially those things for which we are most ashamed. There's nothing about your life that is not known by somebody else who can hold that with you, who can know that about you, and who doesn't leave you, who Why knows would you want, to, I don't, I'm not sure I'm following you. Why would you want um, people, are you saying that you want people to, you, I assume that you're not just talking about anyone, but why is it important to share those, I guess, hidden things, so to speak? I mean, if, if, if they're hidden and you share them, they're no longer hidden. Um, but why is that so you, you feel that's important? Well, here's, here's, uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and here's how we would answer that. Um, in order for us to uh, have the mind of Christ, in order for us to be fully integrated human beings, in order for us to have hearts that are undivided, as the psalmist asks God to create in him, in order for that to happen, that means, relatively speaking, that all the things that I sense, image, feel, and remember, all of those things need to be able to come together in an integrated whole. But if I have some things that I'm ashamed of, two things at least will happen from a neurological standpoint. One thing is that I will work pretty hard not to try to pay attention to that. I will sequester that part of my story off into some room in my mental house and keep it locked and post a guard there so nobody can find it. 
one of the things that happens is that I have to burn mental energy to keep that shameful thing hidden. That means that there is going to be energy that I'm burning on that account that is not available to me to be listening to the voice of God, to be creative in ways that God is inviting me to be creative, to enter into God's work in the world. I, that energy is not going to be available because I'm too busy burning that energy, keeping that piece of my life hidden. The other thing that happens is that I literally will then be creating disconnected parts of my mind. By literally, I mean there will be certain neural networks, certain neurons that represent what I feel, think, sense, and image about those particular events that I will systematically cut off from the rest of my brain. Now, not literally physically cut off, but they will no longer be in active electrochemical communication with the rest of my mind. I mean, this has been like shown, seen, this is empirically proven. Right. This has been empirically shown, especially, for instance, when people do meditation exercises and allow, and allow different parts of their mind to be connected to other parts of their mind. We see the differences in PET scans, for instance, when people have elements of their mind that are, more, that are brought more clearly to their uh, conscious attention than when, those, than, than when those folks are working really hard keeping certain things out of their conscious awareness. And, what the, and, and the, the, but the thing about this that, that is also the case is that I have less emotional flexibility. I have less emotional flexibility, less emotional resilience when I'm burning all that energy, keeping all of those things hidden in their own particular rooms in the mental house, as it were. When I have relationships in which I am fully known, in which all of my story is fully known by another. Those relationships both enable me to have the freedom of no longer being ashamed as I, make, as I tell my story to people, but also those relationships enable my literal neural networks in my brain to be more fully integrated and connected to each other in the process. My mind, literally, my brain, my working brain, works more efficiently. It works in a more integrated fashion. And it does so primarily in the context of my being connected to other people. And so in this way, we see that the degree to which I am fully known by other people and fully connected to other people, those people who are safe, those people who can hold my story with integrity, it is also the case that that represents a more fully integrated brain that I will experience as well. And so these things are impossible to disconnect. They are always connected. The degree to which my mind flourishes, the degree to which I have an integrated mind, the degree to which my mind can be renewed is directly related to the degree to which I am deeply connected to other people in my life. One of the questions that I ask that I ask patients or I ask people in a group if I'm doing any kind of conference is, if you could name for me three people, could you name for me three people who collectively, if I were to speak to collectively all three of them, they would be able to tell me everything there is to know about you. 
not just vital statistics, not just where you were born and who your parents were and what your weight is and what you had for dinner last night, but they would tell me what your deepest fears are. They would tell me the last time that you, um, you, know, that you looked at pornography. They could tell me the last time that you were uh, judgmental about someone else in your church. They could tell me everything because you are fully known by those people. We live with the illusion that we can have a relationship with God that is separate from the relationship that we have with human beings. I can say, oh, I trust God. It's just people that I don't trust. The biblical narrative would suggest, especially when you start to read the implications of what Paul talks about when he talks about the body of Christ and what Jesus talks about in John chapter 12 and 13, the implications are clear that the degree to which I trust and love God is going to be measured directly in the intimacy with which I have real relationships with real human beings. This is why our relationship with God is so deeply shaped by, as well as reflected by, the degree to which we are known by other human beings. And this is, I think, I think at least in my experience, uh, that's what it means when Paul writes about this idea that to be known by God, uh, the way that happens in this world is that we are known by other people. It doesn't mean that there are things about us that God doesn't know. There's, God knows everything. But it's like a parent who knows all about the facts of what happened in their third grade child's uh, classroom this afternoon. That parent might know all about it because the teacher's already called and told the parent what happened. But that's a very different experience for the parent and for the child, for the child to begin to tell the parent about what that experience was like, and for the child to have the experience of their parent being known by their parent, or the parent being known by their child even, as their, as their children become older. So all this is really uh, significant, I think, uh, for, for boots on the ground, life in the real world, uh, kind of work that, we, that you and I are doing every day. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've just been listening to Kurt, Dr. Kurt Thompson, and we're going to end this session. And if you've enjoyed listening to what Dr. Kurt has shared today, I encourage you to definitely purchase his book, Anatomy of the Soul. Dr. Kurt, I want to thank you once again for joining us. Thanks so much, Anna. Great to be with you.